Something I learned as a pastor of a union church is that our two denominations have different names for this evening's remembrance of the Last Supper. Among Methodists, this Thursday of Holy Week is called Holy Thursday. But among Presbyterians, it's called Maundy Thursday. Maundy is what happens to mandatum if you keep calling something by its Latin name for a couple of centuries after the legions leave Britain, after Rome falls, and after the members of the congregation have forgotten how to speak Latin. As members of a church that is working to revitalize its ministry, there's a lesson here about how churches don't always know how to get rid of something when it served its purpose. So we shouldn't be surprised if we sometimes face that problem too. The Latin phrase that became Maundy Thursday was originally mandatum novum, or new mandate, a new a reference to the new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room after they had eaten that last supper. A new commandment that was really an old commandment. Jesus told his disciples that we are to love one another. Jesus said that this was the hallmark of the community of Jesus' followers. By this, he said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Isn't that interesting? Not how often you go to church, not how much money you contribute, not how much of the Bible you memorize or how often you pray, not even how many deeds of mercy you do for the poor and sick, but whether you love other Christians. I I looked it up and I found 106 times where the New Testament says things that Christians are to do for one another to bear one another's burdens, to be patient with each other, to love one another, to encourage one another, to provoke one another to acts of love and good deeds. A hundred and six times, the New Testament tells us how we are to one another, each other. Jesus gave this commandment so the world would be able to look at Christians and say, look how they love one another. They could say, I could never believe some of the impossible things those people believe, but they sure do love one another. About 200 AD, the Christian movement was still so small that most people had never heard of it. And there was a leader in the early church in North Africa named Tertullian. And he said that when the surrounding culture thought about Christians, that's what they thought. See how they love one another. A little bit more than a century later, in the middle of the 300s, a Roman emperor named Julian complained how the pagan religion was losing market share because everyone knew how the Christians took care of one another. He said, the Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And all men see that our poor, our people, lack aid from us. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See how they love one another. Is that how the world looks at us today? I wonder. Too often I think the world evaluates Christians by what we believe or how we relate to non-Christians instead of how we relate to one another. And there's some justice in them doing so. We've all heard stories about denominational splits and church fights And sometimes they become so nasty that people outside the church find out about them too. But 
according to John's biography, this is the one commandment, the one touchstone, the one hallmark, the one calling card that Jesus gave to his followers so that the world will know that we are his disciples, that we love one another. And while you're chewing on that, I will add this. It seems really odd that if it is that important, that Luke wouldn't include the commandment in his account of the Last Supper. We've been reading Luke's biography this spring, and we've followed him from his Galilean ministry all the way to his arrival in Jerusalem on Sunday and now to the upper room tonight. And later he will go to Gethsemane and tomorrow the cross. Luke has an account of the Last Supper, but he doesn't mention the new commandment. And that seems odd. Now, part of the reason, I'm sure, is that the biography that Luke assembled was shorter. John devotes nearly half of his biography to the things that Jesus taught in the upper room that night. Six chapters. uh, Five chapters, excuse me. While Luke's account, like those in Matthew and Mark, are brief sketches that focus more on the events themselves than what Jesus taught. And and yet, he doesn't mention the new commandment. Now, in his account, Luke describes the Last Supper in some detail, how it occurred at the time of the Festival of Unleavened Bread or Passover and how the disciples found the upper room where they prepared the Passover. Luke tells us how Judas Iscariot agreed to betray Jesus for money. How much money? 30, that's right. Only Matthew the tax collector in his account tells us it was 30 pieces of silver. I think people who count money (laughs) tend to count money. Luke gives us a sketch of the Passover meal with the cup of blessing, the breaking of bread, and the later cup of wine after supper. And if we weren't so used to hearing it done this way, we would be shocked to hear Jesus hijack the Passover liturgy, telling his disciples to do it not to remember how God had delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt and led them through the Red Sea to the Promised Land, but to remember him. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this not to remember the Sinai Covenant, or the other important moments in the history of the people of God. Do it to remember a brand new covenant sealed in his blood. If we had been there that night, we would still be asking ourselves, who is this guy and who does he think he is? But while we were still wondering, Luke says Jesus told his disciples that a traitor was in their midst. He says they began to ask each other, who would ever do such a thing? And you can imagine that conversation. Who would ever do such a thing to him? He's our rabbi. He's taught us so much about God. And what he's taught has been confirmed by the most amazing signs and wonders. I could never do that to him. Bartholomew. I could easily see Bartholomew doing it. Or Thomas. But not me. And then Thomas would say, no, not me. Matthew, Matthew for sure, or Simon the Zealot, but not me. And then Peter would say, even if everyone else turned away from you, I never would. There's something about us that 
makes us turn our protestations of innocence into comparisons. I may not truly be innocent, but I'm not as guilty as they are. Not just, I'll be loyal to you, Jesus, but I'll be more loyal to you than anyone else. Not just, you can trust me, but you should trust me more than you trust these other jokers. And you can imagine how the conversation progresses as they begin to look forward. I'm not just more loyal. I'm going to go further and rise higher. They began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest. And this is where Jesus speaks up. And it's interesting, again, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say not to be the greatest. He doesn't tell them to be careful not to choke on their ambition. He tells them the truth, which is that compared to him, they will always be a rounding error. That he's got a hundred times more greatness in his toenail clippings than they will have on the best day of their life. Instead, Jesus says, okay, you want to be the greatest? Let me tell you how. Be a servant. Take the lowest rank. Jesus tells his disciples, Jesus tells us, to channel our ambition in a direction that helps others. Instead of trying to become better than the other disciples in the room, he says, don't settle for that. Become truly great. God made you to be awesome. Be that great. But you won't become great by trying to beat others. You will only become great by serving others. And this is where Luke's biography of Jesus intersects with the new mandate, the new commandment that John records. Today, when someone in our culture talks about love, we think of the emotions. We think of that gooey feeling we get in the middle of our stomach. And emotions are fine, but Jesus knows that true love doesn't stop with emotions. Compassion may start in the stomach, but if it's real, it motivates to action. In John's Gospel, Jesus says this, And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not more, not greater than their master, nor is the master, messenger more important than the one who sends the message. That sounds a lot like serving one another, doesn't it? It sounds like Jesus is comparing the one who's sitting at the table with the one who's serving. God made us to be great. People are made to be ambitious. But part of our brokenness is that we want to be better than other broken people instead of aspiring to be truly great like Jesus. So be great. Be the greatest you can be. And the way to greatness is service. Where do you serve? Jesus says that service is the path to greatness. And that's true at home, at school, at work, in your neighborhood, in your relationships, anytime and all the time. But let me focus it tonight at the church. Where do you serve in the church? I know a lot of you already serve here. Looking around, I'm trying to find someone who doesn't. This is a small church. And if a lot of us didn't serve in one way or another, we'd have to close our doors. But let me ask this. 
Where are you serving? Are you still doing what you were doing a year ago or 10? Jesus says we shouldn't rest on our laurels. We should strive for greatness. Are you serving at your peak capacity? Maybe you need to try something more ambitious. Maybe one way you can serve others is to let go of what you've long since mastered. That opens up a service opportunity for someone else. They won't do as good a job as you, but there's only one way they'll ever get better. And when you tackle something more ambitious yourself, you'll be out of your comfort zone. You'll be in deeper waters where the only way you'll succeed is by the grace of God. But that's what God wants you to do. It's what he wants for you. He wants you to be great, and the path to greatness is a path not a destination. Don't settle for good or good enough. Go for greatness. Be a servant. Let's pray. Eternal and holy God, we give you thanks for this new covenant, for the sign that Jesus gave us to point us to the reality of your love poured out for us. Lord, too often we do try to be better than other broken people. Help us to have the courage to be like Jesus, to be as great as we were made to be. Give us eyes so we can see places to serve so that we might walk the path to greatness. We pray it in his name. Amen.